Actually, the, uh, I may be in the wrong room because the speech I prepared tonight is titled Quantum Mechanics Synchronized with Electromagnetic, Electromagnetic Spectrum as Anticipated by the Theory of Relativity. And so you have me talking about the men in black, huh? Eh? <laughs> See, already you're not taking me seriously. The men in black really are not anything new. Can you hear me in the back? Because I may fade away here. There, there are many references in the Bible which could be interpreted as men in black type incidents because they, although they're called angels, they're usually were, were in threes, as our modern men in black are. They travel in threes. And they, they got into all sorts of mischief. You remember the three men who went to Sodom and Gomorrah and warned the the innocent people, the few innocent people there. That was, today that would be interpreted as a men in black incident. Because the men in black is a generic term. It doesn't cover just uh, the men in black and black Cadillacs who, who arrive at uh, the scene of UFO incidents. As I'll describe to you later, there are all kinds of men in black. Uh, they're mystery men. And we don't know who they are, where they come from, or who's supporting them. And some of these people apparently have a lot of logistical support and financial support that's very mysterious. In the Orient, for thousands of years, there's been a legend called, I, is this mic that sensitive? Is this showing up on the tape too, every time? I, I need this to hold myself up. In the, in the Orient, for thousands of years, they've had a legend called the King of the World. And it's surprising how many people believe in this. And then the 20s and the 30s, uh, various explorers who were traveling through uh, the Himalayas and uh, India and uh, Mongolia, outer Mongolia, they all heard these legends and there were a lot of books in the 20s and 30s that mentioned the king of the world. He's right behind me now, rewinding. Uh, the, the king of the world, the king of the world supposedly lives in an underground city. And we've all heard about under, underground cities. Well, somewhere in, in the reaches of uh, outer Mongolia, there's supposed to be an underground city where the king of the world resides. And he sends out his agents to uh, control the world, the Swiss world. And these agents are men in black. They, they're orientals. They look oriental. They're dressed in black garments. And they supposedly travel all over the world. And these legends are very extensive. And they've been going on for a long time. So. Uh, half the world believes that the men in black are from the underground, from the uh, Agartha, you've heard uh, that name probably. There have been various books on it. Uh, and, and as I say, in the 20s and 30s, a lot of books. In the 1940s, a man named Richard Shaver sort of revived it and gave it an, an American twist with his Shaver mystery, which was about, again, about underground cities populated by detrimental robots, or duros, who controlled everything on the surface with their mysterious rays. And the Shaver mystery, uh, today it's almost forgotten, but it dominated the UFO field for the first five or six years. Uh, from 1947 to 1955, the Shaver mystery was the number one explanation for everything that was going on. Uh, Ray Palmer published quite a few books supposedly written by Shaver, but as it turns out, they were really written by Ray Palmer, promoting this idea and promoting the, uh, the Shaver notions of men in black, because there were a lot of men in black stories in the Shaver mystery.
And there, until just recently, there was a magazine out west called The Shavertron, which was about the Shaver mystery. And there's another magazine called The Hollow Hassle, which was about the hollow earth where all of these uh, men in black were coming from, supposedly. But then, if you go to other religions, the Western religions, you find all kinds of men in black stories, especially in the uh, uh, Catholicism and in the Protestant religions, we have all the stories about the devil, uh, who very often is described as looking oriental, very uh, sinister looking oriental, dressed in black garments. So it's, it has deep roots, this whole concept of the men in black. In witchcraft, which is a, a booming religion right now, even though most of you aren't aware of it, there are two stores in New York City that just sell equipment for witchcraft. During the, the rituals that some witches indulge in, they have one of the num number dress up in black, and they act out uh, the role of the man in black. And uh, this is a part of the witchcraft religion. In the uh, late 1940s, there was a famous World War II general named Karl Spatz, who was the uh, general in charge of the Air Force in Europe for part of the war. And he made a very strange statement around 1948-49. He said there was absolutely, uh, this was at a press conference, he said there was absolutely no evidence that flying saucers were piloted by Spaniards. And th this was really from left field. Apparently, people had been informing the Air Force that they'd seen a flying saucer and a Spaniard got out of it. They, meaning that uh, he, he was an a olive-skinned uh, person with a, who looked like a Spaniard. We never got uh, the Air Force material that uh, Spots based, based that comment on, but it was a very peculiar statement. When I was traveling extensively around the country, I used to carry a lot of photographs with me in, in my briefcase, uh, photographs of different kinds of objects, and also photographs of different ethnic groups, because I was running into uh, men and black witnesses all over the country. And I would go through these photographs with them to ask them if they saw anyone that resembled the man in black that they had seen. There were photographs of Indians, there were photographs of the various uh, Negroid races from Africa, there were photographs of Eskimos, uh, it was a little mix of uh, all kinds of ethnic groups. And there was one photograph that everybody jumped on. They, they would stop and say, that is the, looks just like the guy that I saw. And believe it or not, it was a photograph of a Laplander from uh, northern Sweden. Now, they have a kind of oriental look to them. They're small in stature, and they, they have a distinctive look. And so... Uh, I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, the men in black are all Laplanders, but they, they, they certainly look like them and seem to be related to them. Now we have the legends that everyone will see a man in black sooner or later. And the legend, which is an old legend, says you will see them, the man in black three times. And the third time you see him, it means you're going to die. And if you go through the history books, you'll find that a lot of people have reported this, including Maria Antoinette, and uh, pe people that uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't expect to, to have this kind of involvement, Napoleon. So uh, that, that legend is a, uh, a continuing legend and a strong one.
The other kind of man in black that we have, and that I've seen myself, we, for the want of a name, we call them the cadavers. Now these are people who look they've been dead a long time, and their clothes, their clothes hang on them. Their flesh is pasty white, and they they look like uh, maybe somebody had dug them up from a cemetery last week, and they're walking around. And this this cadaverous type has turned up in strange places in England, in Sweden. Uh, Brad Steiger saw one. Uh, as I say, I saw one in the early 60s. And uh, we have no idea what these fellows are about. Uh, they're very elusive. When you approach them, they sort of hurry away. But And they, I've never heard of them saying anything to anybody. But they, they do have a habit of turning up in uh, UFO areas and uh, following uh, UFO investigators around. So if you ever see a cadaverous-looking man out there following you, you'll know who he is. He's one of them. <laughs> now, we, we have a lot of mystery men in this country that we've never been able to explain. Uh, mystery men who turn up at uh, UFO sightings and spread all kinds of uh, false material around. Uh, there was a, uh, well, one that comes to immediately to mind happened in Texas a few years ago. There was a, a big movement to dig up a grave in Texas where a little man was supposedly buried. And uh, one, a very well-dressed businessman type, came to the cemetery and he handed out his business card and he spent uh, hours there and he got everybody all stirred up and he left. And it turned out that his business card was a fraud and the name that he gave everybody was a fraud. And uh, we don't know where he came from or where he went or why he bothered to, to go to the cemetery. The story was that in uh, 1896, a UFO had crashed in this little town in Texas. And there had been a little man aboard and the people had buried him in the local cemetery. Now this story, it turns out, was a newspaper hoax, as a lot of the stories from 1896 were. But somebody dug up this clipping in the 1970s, and there was a stampede to go to Texas, to this little town, and dig up the cemetery. Of course, the local people didn't like that very much, and it was all a big uh, sensational brouhaha. They, nobody ever found anything in the cemetery, but uh, it was great fun for a while. And we have, we have a lot of that type of incident where uh, somebody deliberately stirs up the UFO buffs and then they vanish. And the UFO buffs remain stirred up sometimes for months or many months afterwards. And uh, very often uh, the stories of these uh, strange, bogus people circulate, get into the UFO literature and become part of the UFO literature. During the Vietnamese War, uh, in those days, and I'm talking now about the 60s, I had a network of informants all over the country who were sending me newspaper clippings for a newsletter that I was publishing. And I started getting these little clippings from random places, uh, far-flung places, Minnesota and uh, New Mexico and Oregon. And it was the damnedest thing. Somebody was visiting the families of men who were in Vietnam. And this somebody was dressed in a military uniform, and they would drive up to the house of the family, and they would uh, follow military procedures exactly. They would inform the mother or the wife or the father, brother, whoever, that uh, their relative had been killed in Vietnam. And this, this was a, uh, 
a very sinister thing because uh, it would turn out to be untrue, but you can imagine what it would do to the family for a few days until they found out that it was not true. And these, these fellows, whoever they were, they were dressed in the proper military uniform. Our men in black, by the way, when they're in military uniform, there's always something wrong with it. There's something askew. But these men were dressed in proper military uniforms, and they were driving the proper vehicles. Now, anyone who's been in the Army knows that uh, uh, military officers don't ride around in black Cadillacs. They ride around in sedans, Chevys and Fords and things that are painted, usually painted brown. And that's the way these men, what they would be driving would be uh, a simple car, a sedan that's been painted brown. And I, as I kept getting these clippings, because uh, if we got a few clippings about this, it probably was happening in a lot more places. I assumed that sooner or later the FBI or some police department would do something and we'd have a big story out of it. But it never happened. These, these stories trickled in for maybe two or three years. And whoever these uh, crazy people were, they were doing a lot of damage to these families. You also have to realize that they had to know about the boy in Vietnam, what's, what unit he was stationed with and everything, and they also had to know where his family was located. Some of these uh, families were located on isolated farms that would be pretty hard to find. And yet these guys would drive up to the farm and talk to the mother or the relative and, and as I say, tell them that the boy had been killed. So they had to have some kind of uh, elaborate support, a, a connection with the military in order to do that kind of thing. And it didn't seem, there was a lot of anti-war uh, sympathy, of course, at that time, but it didn't seem to be uh, an action of one of those uh, anti-war groups. So, for want of a better name, we would call these people men in black. And they may still be out there, but who knows what they're doing now. Uh, when I first got into the UFO thing in the 1960s in a big way, uh, it was a popular belief that men in Air Force uniforms were silencing witnesses. And this belief was uh, spread by uh, APRO and NICAP because they would keep getting reports that a man in an Air Force uniform would arrive at the home of the witness and tell them to shut up and keep quiet, appeal to their patriotism. Well, we had a rash of these things on Long Island, and I had strong connections in the Pentagon at that time. Uh, my, an old Army buddy of mine was an assistant to the Secretary of the Air Force. And uh, these Air Force officers would give a name, sometimes uh, they'd show credentials, uh, they would always be in a black Cadillac, which, as I say, is not standard procedure for a military officer. Uh, usually somebody else would be driving the Cadillac. And these men would uh, be in military uniform, but there would be something just a little bit wrong. The insignia would be in the wrong place on the, on the jacket. Or they would be wearing the wrong type of shoes. To see a military officer dressed in a dress uniform, and wearing sneakers, kind of strange. And there was always something that the witness would remember. He said, hey, that was funny. Well, one woman in, uh, in Wisconsin told me that uh, she invited the officer in and offered him some jello, and he tried to drink the jello. And so it, it didn't take me long to figure out that maybe these guys really weren't Air Force officers. And my contacts in the Pentagon could not locate these people, the names that they were being given. In a few cases, we had the license numbers of the cars, and we would check those out, which is very easy to do, and we'd find out the license had never been issued to anybody. 
So now how in the world, if you were going to make up a phony license plate, what kind of luck would it take for you to come up with a number that nobody else had? So I, I started antagonizing the UFO bus by saying, these guys are not from the Air Force. And he said, Akio is obviously working for the CIA. But as soon as I got wise to them, they started using other techniques. Uh, they always stayed one step ahead of me. We had a, a variety of uh, strange uh, incidents that happened over and over again, and never made any sense at all. My, one of my favorites is the phantom meter reader. This is where uh, a man would uh, knock at a door in a, of a house in the suburbs and uh, say he'd come to read the meter, the electric meter, the gas meter. And he would be dressed in uh, the proper coveralls and all, and they would let him in, and he'd go down into the basement, and he wouldn't come out. And these people, after about an hour, they'd say, what the hell is he doing down in my basement? And they would look, and sometimes the man would be gone, altogether, never to be seen again. And even though there was no way out of his base at that basement, and other times, they the man would be just starting up the stairs as they opened the cellar door to find out where he was. <clears throat> so the phantom meter readers was uh, w one type of uh, uh, MIB that we we've had. Then we had the phantom photographers, and these these were humdingers because they, these fellows turned up everywhere. They often traveled in pairs. Uh, one would be a woman, and the other would be a man, and. Uh, they were usually quite well dressed, and they usually uh, would arrive in a black Cadillac until I started doing articles about the black Cadillacs, and then they switched to Volkswagens. And they, and they, they were driving around West Virginia in their Volkswagens, and they, they, they would drive up to the house of a witness, a UFO witness, who had just had a baby. And they would say that they were f photographers, professional photographers, and they wanted to photograph the baby. And of course, the new parents would be delighted to have that done. So they, they would uh, set up their equipment, they'd take pictures of the baby, and they'd give the people a card with the neighboring town listed on the card as the, you know, acne photographers. And they would drive away. And it would turn out that there was no such thing as acne photographers, and they would never come back. And if they were professional photographers, they'd never tried to sell the photographs to these families. So that, that was another mystery. And then we had the phantom photographers who, uh, after somebody Say you'd never seen a UFO before in your life, and then one night you're, you're out driving home late, and you see a, a UFO close up, and you live in the suburbs. The next day, you're, you're getting up, and there's a, a Cadillac parked in front of your house, and some men get out, and they take out a big tripod and a big heavy camera, and they set it on the tripod, and they take a picture of your house. And then they put it all back in the car, and they drive away. You, you figure they're going to come up to the door, and offer to sell you a picture of your beautiful house. But they don't do that. They just get in the car and drive off. And I, uh, in, the, in the course of my uh, investigations, I learned to ask people about, not just about what they had seen, but about any strange thing that had happened to them around the time of their sighting, that week or that, even that month. And a lot of people would come up with some very strange things, very strange visitors. Uh, and we still get reports of these strange visitors. About 10 years ago in New York City, there was a lady in black that used to hang around the, uh, the pickup bars around 2nd Avenue. And this, this woman became a legend in New York. I know some of you may have heard of her. But she, she would uh, approach men 
in in the uh, a bar and get them all uh, excited, and then she would excuse herself and go into the ladies' room and never come out again. Uh, there, there were there must have been a hundred of these stories during that period. We we had uh, supposedly a, a very good-looking lady too, dressed in a very slinky black dress, and God knows what game that was, or what what the purpose of all that was for. Now, as I said, uh, we've had an opportunity. Witnesses, a lot of witnesses, have either offered them food or seen these people in restaurants, and we've had an opportunity to see their eating habits, which are disgusting. Uh, these people do not know how to eat. They don't. They, as I said, one of them tried to drink Jello. Uh, they, they, they don't know how to um, handle a knife and fork. Uh, in one incident, uh, the waitress had to come over and show his, show the man how to cut a steak. And then they they didn't chew their food. They just sort of swallow it, gulp it down. And they they figure they're getting away with it, but everybody in the place is watching them do it. And again, they always look like um, uh, Orientals who are not quite Oriental. Again, the, the Laplander kind of look. And they're always dressed uh, in black clothes, which most often is out of style. They're, they're wearing something that would have been in style in 1946 instead of 1986. And uh, so there's always some little thing that's, that's out of whack for these people, just as the military officers wear sneakers, as I said. We, we have a lot of things lumped into the same category. Uh, there are various incidents that I was involved in over the years. We had a UFO investigator in Maine who was, uh, people, and some of you probably know all about this, uh, get very obsessed with UFOs. Uh, it, it dominates their whole life, and uh, especially if they become UFO investigators in a small town. It, it likes, takes over their life, and then they, uh, they become very credulous, and uh, all sorts of strange things can seem to happen to them. Uh, we had a UFO investigator in Maine who was driving around an area where UFOs had been seen, and he saw a black Cadillac, and he had a gun with him, and he got out of the car and started shooting at the black Cadillac, which uh, really upset the guy who was driving the black Cadillac, because it wasn't a black Cadillac at all. This UFO investigator was hallucinating. He thought he was seeing a black Cadillac, and it was an ordinary car, and this and being driven by an ordinary person. And it was a, almost a very serious incident. The man, the investigator, was hauled into jail, and nobody would believe his story. And uh, he, he turned to me, thinking I could get him out of the slammer. But what, what am I going to go up there and say? Listen, the man is uh, shooting at black uh, Cadillacs, and uh, he thinks he sees uh, men in black. We had, we had a UFO investigator in Massachusetts who was seeing alligators. Now this man, this poor man, uh, would turn on the spigot in his bathroom and an alligator would come out of the faucet. <laughs> he, he would get into his car and he'd look in the back seat and there's an alligator in the back seat. So he was, he was hallucinating about alligators. and. Uh, I knew there was nothing much. I, he was writing me these long letters telling me about all the alligators he was seeing. And I sent a friend of mine, Dr. Berthold Schwartz, up to see him. And when Dr. Schwartz arrived there, the man had a, a shotgun by the door, and he was waiting for Dr. Schwartz, but 
he was afraid that Dr. Schwartz was a man in black. Dr. Schwartz is a famous psychiatrist. But we do have a, a lot of, I, I can't really call them screwballs, because uh, there's something more involved here. It's, it's where they, their minds just get carried away with the whole UFO thing. Uh, the term that I used to use was a distortions of reality. So that uh, very often the people that you're seeing may not be men in black at all. They may be just an ordinary guy in an ordinary suit, and your mind is making him a man in black. <coughs> Betty Hill, Betty and Barney Hill, I don't know if you're uh, up enough with the literature, but Betty and Barney Hill had uh, quite a few men in black episodes, which may have been just hallucinatory. They would go into a restaurant, and they would be followed by this man in a black suit with a mustache, and he would sit down at the table next to them, and while they're eating, this man in black is eating soup, and his mustache falls in his soup. And it was obvious that these people were just following Betty and Barney Hill around, and we would put them into the men in black category. We do know that in the early 1950s, the CIA was directly involved in the UFO investigations. But after 1952, there's no really hard evidence of it. The, the CIA has confessed to the fact that they were involved in UFO investigations between uh, 48 and 52. But then in 52, they had the famous Robertson panel, which decided on the UFO policy. And after that, the CIA was supposedly out of it. But there were still a lot of cases that smelled of the CIA. When, uh, those of you who remember, I guess most of you do, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. When Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested, uh, a large group of men in black suits went to the base in uh, Japan where he had been stationed at one point, and they searched the whole place. This is with all the military officers standing by, and this is in the books about Lee Harvey Oswald. So uh, we, do, we do have... Uh, Agents who are so smart that they wear black suits all the time and wrap around sunglasses and uh, do really stupid things so that they'll stand out. It would seem to me that if they wanted to be really uh, smart, they would uh, dress in dungarees and have long hair and carry a guitar. But no, they, they have to dress in their uniform, just as the FBI agents are always in uniform. They, all, they look like clones. They're all, uh, they all have the same haircut, they all had the same uh, kind of clothing. Of course, J. Edgar Hoover was very strict. They had to, they had to uh, look like FBI agents. Now, I had a friend in England. Uh, his name was Ted Holliday. He wrote a number of very good books. You may have remembered Ted Holliday. Uh, he saw a man in black at Loch Ness. Now, he, he had been spending every summer at Loch Ness looking for the famous sea serpent there. Never, he, he, well, actually, he did see the sea serpent once, or he thought he did. Anyway, he said this man in black was dressed in black leather with goggles and a helmet like a motorcyclist. And Ted walked up to him and turned his eyes away for about 10 seconds. And in that time, the man vanished. Now, one year later, Ted was on the, that same spot, because he goes back, went back there every year, and he had a severe heart attack. And as he was lying on a stretcher and they were about to carry him off from that spot, he, he realized that it was the spot, exact spot where he had seen this man in black a year earlier. 
Uh, Colin Wilson, the very famous British author, had a few comments to make on this, but, but it's a one, one theory to go with. He said, Holiday was experiencing a problem that is familiar to students of the paranormal. They begin more or less as open-minded open skeptics, prepared to give serious consideration to any evidence that presents itself, but determined not to indulge in any self-deceptions. Finally, the sheer weight of the evidence convinces them that something odd is going on, and they try to create what Aldous Huxley called a minimum working hypothesis, an explanation that covers the basic facts. This may be, for example, telepathy. Uh, a famous writer named Lethbridge saw a ghost, a man dressed in a writing clothing, in the, in the rooms of a university friend. And he theorized that someone else may have been thinking about this man and that his own mind somehow picked up the image like a television picture without the sound. But he was forced to drop this explanation as he encountered other examples of the paranormal. And this tends to be the experience of the most serious investigators. Whenever they have formulated a watertight general theory, they stumble upon some new fact that simply refuses to fit in. And then they have to extend the theory. Then they find still more awkward facts, and they have to extend it still further. And in no time at all, their original, neat, symmetrical theory looks like an old sack stuffed with rubbish. Uh, years ago, when we had a lot of uh, magazines that we don't have anymore, general magazines, that carried uh, a lot of articles, not only about UFOs, but about all everything that was going on. Now it's, it's very rare that we get any real in-depth uh, investigative reporting anywhere. Uh, there was a magazine called Saga that used to do a lot of this, and I used to write for them. A lot of people wrote for them. A lot of the UFO writers wrote for Saga. And they, once they started carrying uh, UFO articles, they started getting all kinds of hoax letters. And uh, uh, we knew they were hoaxes, because they were perfectly typed with no misspellings. And uh, this was rare. You, you get an average letter from an average person, and there's always, you know, it's sloppy. But these things were perfectly done and beautifully typed. Obviously, somebody had the best of uh, IBM typewriters at that time, and they were these things were well thought out and carefully done. And that's how we would know they were hoaxes. If we got a, a, a letter written in pencil, and uh, making all kinds of weird, exaggerated claims, we know that that maybe was authentic. But these hoax letters were something else. We got one MIB account that the editor was quite excited about, and it was so well, well written that I pointed out it had to have been written by a professional writer. There's no way that the average witness could have written this. It was beautifully done, and he followed all of the rules of writing, which most people don't even aware exist, and then he, he went into detail about this elaborate MIB experience, and then he followed it up with a postcard saying that he was leaving by a bus for an unknown destination so that we could never follow through and find out who he was. We've had, around the world, we've had what they call the UMO letters. How many of you have heard of UMO? Uh, there have been books about it. This has been going on for over 20 years. It's about 25 years now, I think. These are very elaborate letters written in all languages and sent to leading researchers around the world. And these letters 
are uh, filled with uh, interesting philosophies. And whoever writes this, uh, these things has a, a good knowledge of the science and philosophy. Uh, some of the letters are quite impressive. It just, there are just too many of them. And everyone has a different postmark. One, one uh, man in Spain may get a letter postmarked New Zealand. And the next Umo letter may turn up in uh, Germany, written in German, and postmarked uh, Canada. So whoever's mailing these things is mailing them from all over the world, and they're writing them in vast quantities. Who's ever doing it is doing it full time, which is a puzzle. And uh, as I say, there are now a couple of books. And I, I don't know if any of them have been translated into English, but books of these letters have been published in Europe. And at one point, the French government got involved in this. And the French government became convinced that they were in touch with another planet. And I'm talking about high up in the French government, the minister of France, uh, the leading scientists in France were all involved. And then it turned into a great embarrassment because uh, then hoaxes were pulled on them. And uh, it, it was one of the sensational things of the 1970s. The result was that the French government gave up on UFOs and they decided instead to fund the private investigators, the civilian investigators. And they gave them the, enough money to go out and investigate things, which is remarkable in any country. And these French investigators all became anti-UFO. And now that they had the funding and they were able to travel around, they reopened old cases like the famous, uh, you may know that in 1952 there were a lot of UFO landings in France. Uh, all over France. They reopened a lot of these cases and they decided that they were all hoaxes. And it, it was a very strange turnabout. And it all started with the UMO letters to the top officials of France. Now, it is quite possible, it's even probable, that people high up in the American government have also been sucked into these kind of games and given up at some point. Now, it's 10 o'clock. How, how long am I supposed to go? Ten more minutes. Maybe I should take some questions. Approach me? No, but I've approached them. I've chased them. I've, I've missed them by ten minutes. Uh, I was When I was in West Virginia and Ohio, people would call me up in my hotel and they'd say, hey, these guys are here, and uh, come, and, come and get them. You know? And uh, so I'd race there, and uh, they'd, they'd be gone by ten minutes. And uh, we had the local police in a lot of towns looking for them. We, we had, at one time, I had hopes that we would catch one of these fellows and solve a part of that mystery. Somebody asked me about Maury Island. That was considered the first Men in Black case. And it, it turned out that's a very involved thing because I spent a lot of time on that Maury Island case. Um, this is where a group of men were on a boat in Tacoma Harbor, and they saw a couple of objects fly over the boat. This is in 1947. And early the next morning, a black car pulled up in front of the home of one of the witnesses and a man got out and invited the witness to, to breakfast. And over breakfast he warned him not to talk about what he had seen the day before. This was before he told anybody. So uh, this became one of our first men in black cases. But when you really dig into that, it seems to have an explanation. At that time, that area, uh, the Hanford works is very close to that where we make atom bombs. And there was a, a big thing going on with the spies. And uh, uh, later, of course, we had sensational spy trials about the atom bomb, where uh, 65 of the uh, scientists who were making the atom bomb 
were proved to be traitors, and they had been giving the Soviet Union materials. And this was all tied in with that. And, it, and so a lot of the stuff that was going on in, in Maury Island that didn't make sense at that time later makes sense in the context of the spy chases that were going on and all. And uh, the, the, the original story where this, these objects were flying over to Coma Harbor, uh, this story has a certain flaws to it, that, namely that the one of the men who uh, gave, made the most noise about it proved to be a tremendous liar. And uh, it's a very involved and complex case. I have enough material to do a book on it, and nobody wanted to do the book. They said, ah, it's 1947, forget about it. Yeah, but uh, it, it was not uh, one of our true men in black cases. Well, no, the only, the only photograph is uh, Tim Beckley and his friends uh, took a photograph some years ago in New Jersey. There, there was a black Cadillac that parked across from uh, the home of a UFO investigator. And this man would get out of the black Cadillac and stand around and, and look at the house. And uh, so uh, Jim Mosley and uh, Tim Beckley and some others, maybe they'll tell you about it later, they went out there with cameras and they, they went chasing after this uh, Cadillac. Uh, my theory is that it was somebody's chauffeur. Well, there are, there are, there are a couple of cases where they seem to, to be machine-like. Like they, they run down like a clock. As, uh, they'll talk for, with a witness for half an hour and they just run down. And then they'll, then they'll leave the house and uh, say the, the witness lives way out in the country somewhere. And they leave the house and they disappear. And the witness looks out the window and there's no car out there, nothing for them, no transportation for them. Another thing that happens in more than one case is it can be raining and miserable. And these people will arrive at the door and they're dry and their feet aren't muddy or anything. Not, uh, we've had a lot of cases where they threaten people. Uh, and and there, are, there are cases where they have bragged about killing people. There was a famous case where they bragged about killing uh, Barney Hill, uh, bragged to a doctor about that. But uh, we don't have any direct evidence that that's happened. But there have been a lot of mysterious deaths in the UFO field. And from now on, you can watch for this. Uh, a lot of the leading UFO investigators have died on June 24th. Uh, in fact, even Jackie Gleason, who was a big UFO buff, he built a house up in the Catskills that looked like a UFO. When you drove by it, you'd, you'd swear a UFO had landed, and it was Jackie Gleason's home. But he died on June 24th, uh, two years ago. But there are many others who died. Uh, Frank uh, Edwards, who uh, you've all read his books probably, Frank Edwards died on June 23rd. Of course, June 24th is the date that Kenneth Arnold saw the sighting, had the sightings in uh, 1947. Well, thank you very much. I think... Uh